0: it's not just about getting their rocks off for guys guys genuinely need companionship and nurture that nurturing female energy and so what do they turn to they turn to things like OnlyFans to get that and the women who make the most money on that platform are the ones who are able to nurture a relationship with a guy online that way they'll learn you know where he works like what his dog's name is when his birthday is what his favorite hobbies are what his favorite music is what he likes to eat
1: like they'll remember and they'll keep a list of all of these things all right, Sterling, welcome to The Man Talk Show. How are you doing today, brother? Amazing, Mike. Good. You know, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I think I was telling you before we started, I've been looking forward to having this conversation because I feel like you're a very unique voice within the, like, the quote-unquote men's space or the manosphere or like whatever label we want to put on that. Uh, and I really value some of the perspectives that you bring to the table. So I'm I've been looking forward to this conversation for sure. And now that the fanboying is over, let's get into the <laughs> defining moment. Uh, so tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
0: Okay, so uh, yeah, you briefed me before we started the record button, and I told you I'm going to tell you a story that I've never told anyone ever online ever before. So this will be an exclusive first for you and you, your audience. And uh, probably the most defining moment of my life it's actually both simultaneously the saddest moment of my life and one of the happiest at the exact same time, oddly enough. And that was when my mother passed away from cancer. And this is about this is in 2017. She died, of, uh, she died of mesothelioma, which is like asbestosis in the, uh, in the lung, particularly rough, aggressive kind of cancer. So her passing was obviously one of the, to this date, unfortunately the saddest moment in my life. But the happiest moment in my life was actually at her wake, her giving a, a eulogy to my own mother. And for a week, you know, however many days it was, between her passing and the funeral, I sat down with, uh, with, my, with my dad primarily, obviously with my brother and my sister talking, but primarily with my dad, you know, going over, like, his memories of, of her, their, how they met, you know, the early days of their marriage, uh, you know, what it was like raising us as kids, and uh, I, just started taking, I just started taking notes, like all these really lovely, heartwarming, charming stories that he had about her. Mm. And then talking with my sister and talking with other people around our small town, you know, stories about her. And I'd, I'd literally written this eulogy before I didn't have a clue how many people were going to turn up to her funeral. And my mother was a very, very big volunteer in my uh, local community. She was a stay-at-home mother, and all she ever did was like look after us as kids and, and volunteer in the community. And when me and my family, my brother and my sister and my dad, we, we pulled up to the funeral home, you literally couldn't walk the entire town. Like thousands of people turned up for my mother's funeral. First of all, I was blown away by that. And then, then we went up to, uh, to give her eulogy. And literally the first sentence of the eulogy was, she would, my mother wouldn't believe how many people are here right now to say goodbye to her. And I kind of, I'd predicted it, but I hadn't predicted it to the degree in which it had, uh, it had gotten to. It was supposedly standing room only in the funeral home. And for the next 20 minutes, I proceeded to regale, you know, everybody who had known her for the last 50-odd years with all these amazing, incredible, heartwarming, and hilarious stories about her, our family, her relationship with my dad. And I had an entire town basically cackling and laughing <laughs> and celebrating uh, my mother's life for about 20 minutes straight on the day we all said goodbye to her. And that was, that is without a doubt, the most, that, this point in my life, the proudest moment of my
1: life. Mm, that's so good, man. I, I appreciate you sharing that story. And it, it seems like she meant a lot to you and she seems like she meant a lot to a lot of people. That's,
0: yeah, It was yeah. it's funny though. Yeah. It's a, a, a woman who it, it's, it's when you meet somebody who's truly selfless, they have, I noticed this people who are very, very selfless selfless tend to have a little bit of like a degree of like insecurity about them mm. and they don't really perceive how valuable they are to others. Mm-hmm. They have kind of a lot of that negative self-talk. Yeah. And it's a pattern. I know that was something my mother definitely had and that's a pattern I've recognized in other people.
1: What, what, do you th- what do you think that is? Like, what do you think that, because I, I agree with you. I'm curious about your thoughts of where you think that comes from or or why those two things are, are connected? Yeah, I think it's fundamentally valuing other people's opinions
0: over your own. Mm-hmm. So you put other people somewhat on a pedestal and it causes you to have that, like a lesser view of yourself. Your self-esteem is a little bit lower. You're, you base your opinions of yourself more on an external stimulus than your own internal validation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think that that breeds a little bit of insecurity.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like it was hard for you to lose your mom. Can you just say a little bit more about what that was like for you, and maybe how that shifted your perspective on life? Did it change anything in in your life? And um, it gave it's. I always try to find the the silver lining with anything in
0: life. Um, and it was to me. It, gave, it was. I was extremely grateful for the way that my mother passed. I guess, uh, obviously unfortunately, in a lot of pain because of uh, the cancer and whatnot. But we were all there with her at the very end. All of us were in the, the hospital room. Mm. And not many people get that. It gave me a really interesting perspective on death because most people, like, they walk across the road, bang, bus. That's it. Game over. You know, or they're on a treadmill and bang, heart attack. You know, like, it's a lot of people, do, most, most people don't get to say goodbye or their loved ones don't get to say, say goodbye to them and be with them there at the very, very end. And that is a true, true blessing mm-hmm. to, to have that moment and to be able to say goodbye to your loved one. And because of that, because of that moment, and obviously the, the buildup leading to it, cancer sucks, man. Like cancer is an asshole because, you know, you kind of, you, you see it, it's, it's coming, like, you know, it's coming. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. coming from, for a long time uh, and both the person with it and everyone around them who cares about them is kind of dealing with that on a daily basis. But, uh, yeah, because, because of that, I make sure that every time I see my brother and my sister, every time I see my father, any I'm on the phone with them, no matter what the conversation is, no matter how it ends, I always tell them I love them. Mm. And that's, to this day, I never, ever hang up the phone on my dad without telling him I love him first. And he never, and my dad never said, he's, my dad has never said I love you in his entire life. He's one of those old school, like, baby boomer kind of yeah. guys. But it's fine. He doesn't have to. But I, I make sure that I never, ever hang up that phone without saying I love you. Because it's to me, that's those moments, you never know when that last moment is. And it's very precious. You never want to have the regret of ending a conversation with a loved one on a negative note.
1: Yeah, I agree entirely. I mean, I, I live a very similar way. I, I try and live in a very similar way of like, I'm the oldest of five. And I try and let my siblings know as often as possible, you know, not not obnoxiously, but <laughs> I I will not have a conversation with them on the phone without telling them that I love them. And I think I feel a sense of urgency with my mom right now. My mom's has stage four terminal cancer. And so I, I know, yeah, I appreciate that. And I know what that's like, because she's in the, she's in the midst of it. And she's got an incredible spirit, you know, she's, sounds like our moms have some commonality. You know, she volunteers a lot. She, she was working at the food bank, you know, right up until she kind of couldn't anymore because of she's going through chemo and radiation and whatnot. But she was just like, you know, she wanted to give to people as much as possible and uh, sort of social. But I feel that, that urgency of like, you know, are there conversations I need to have with her? Are there things that you know she wants to? I actually brought this up with her like two weeks ago. I, you know, I had a conversation with her. I was like, "Is there anything that you want to do before you pass? Whether it's a month from now, or a year from now, or or a decade? Uh, is there anything that you want to do, or are there, are there any conversations that you think you and I need to have?" You know, her response was, "Well, I think that we should definitely spend some more time together because I I live like two and a half thousand miles away from her," and so I was like, "Okay, cool. So we're you know made some plans for that, but." Just as we maybe wrap up this part of our conversation, you know, having that time with your, I have two questions, actually having that time with your mom at the end, you know, were there, were there certain things that you wanted to do or certain things that you felt like you had to say, or that you wanted her to know, like, how did you handle that passing of, of a parent? You know what? I always had this,
0: it was this this thing with my mother. I always kind of felt sorry for my mother in a weird way. Because she was so selfless, like I mentioned, her whole life was sort of dedicated towards like me and my brother and my sister, and like like looking after us, doing the housework, um, you know, taking us to and from like basketball practice or whatever. And and I always kind of felt like my mother missed out. I personally, and I know my sister has this as well. Like we love to travel, we love to explore the world. Like I've been to like you know like like thirty countries or something at this point. Like I had a lot of really interesting life experiences, unique life experiences. And I looked at my mother. Through that, through that lens. And I was like, man, I feel sorry for her because she hasn't like really done, ever since she had like us, she's basically just been in the same town, been at a stay-at-home mother and, and done that. Mm. And it gave me a very new, pers- like talking with her towards the end and talking particularly with my sister and her, I got a new fresh perspective on like how much she truly loved being a mother and how much fulfillment that gave her. And that took away that feeling of feeling sorry for her mm-hmm. because she wasn't, she was living life, she, the life she wanted to. In a, in a weird way, I kind of felt there was a little bit of guilt there. Like I felt guilty because she, she had to look after me and she didn't get to like live life, but it wasn't, there was no need for the guilt in the first place because she truly, truly loved being a mother and was fulfilled. And that was her, like, and dad made, made, made sure I knew that too. Like there was nothing more that she loved more than being a mother. Mm-hmm. And, and knowing that and coming to that conclusion at the end was very important.
1: I love that. I love that because I I think especially in our modern culture where there's been this degradation in some ways of being a mother, you know, that it's like somehow not enough for a woman to just want to do that, you know, or, or to play that role or that that can't possibly be fulfilling or rewarding enough. So it's, it's interesting to hear you say that. The, the last question that I had, and then, you know, we've, we've got some other ground and territory to cover that's very different from this yeah, I'm like, have very hard, hard, right. We're, we're about to take a, a hard, yeah, right or left, whichever direction, it doesn't matter. <laughs> How, if at all, would you say that your relationship to her shaped your perspective of women and the way that you relate to them?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Because my mother was so, like, again, super selfless, uh, not, you know, very quiet, very demure, uh, it kind of in a weird way it kind of it kind of made me attracted to women who are like very much the opposite for that at least at least in my early 20s so i kind of went after like the wrong kind of women i would say
1: uh see this lot. is this is what i was saying before we got on the call that you and i were kindred spirits yep. <laughs> uh, this this part right with, here this part right but here the same <laughs> mistake, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: yeah i guess um and, and you know, a large part of that is because, like, my parents never sort of—I never had any conversations with my, with my parents about like women and relationships and, and girls and you know, how to, how to vet women and stuff like that. Which is a large part in why I kind of do the work I do. Like, I consider myself more of like—I like to think of myself as like a big brother to a lot of guys. And that's kind of like the angle I try to take. I'm like the big brother that these guys never had. I'm like mm. I'm not their father figure, but I'm like the big brother you can have like an honest conversation with, and he's gonna he's gonna give you the nuanced kind of like realistic perspective on things. Yeah. So for me, it was more of a, it was a case of like trying to look, looking for something that was kind of the complete polar opposite, more exciting, more, uh more, more risque, maybe a bit, yeah, a bit bad, not like a bad girl, not a good girl was what mm-hmm. I was kind of looking for in my early twenties. Mm-hmm. And uh now, now I realize that that is definitely not where I want to want, you know, that's not the kind of woman I want to have a family with.
1: So that kind of changed. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So let's, let's, uh, ease into the other part of the conversation, <laughs> which is what got you into the porn industry in the first place? Like how does one find themselves at the doorstep of a, of a sex scene? Yeah, you know what? It's actually those two things are like somewhat
0: related actually because because I was thinking about death so much for like the, you know, the, the year or so of her diagnosis. I, uh, yeah, when you're thinking about death a lot, it just, it's just constantly on your mind, right? with this thing looming in the, in, the, in the forefront. And there was a period of about a month straight where I literally woke up every day and I asked myself the same question. I said, if I died today, what's the one thing I would regret having never tried? And it, for me, and for me, the answer for 30 days straight was basically porn. And that's a degenerate, retarded answer, <laughs> but it's the answer. Uh, that's honest, honestly the, what, what came to me. And I think a large part of it was because it just seemed so, so far-fetched of a goal to even possibly comprehend. Because I'm from, I'm from the middle of, I'm from fuck nowhere, man. I'm from like a 3,000-person farming town in, in rural Western Australia. Like Perth, if you don't know where Perth is on the, on the West Coast, it's the world's most isolated capital city. There's, there's nothing near us at all tiny population. There's no one there. There's definitely no big industry of of adult entertainment there. So for me, it was just this weird thing of like, I, I like to do things that I like to prove people wrong for a start whenever I can. If someone tells me I can't do something, it immediately makes me want to go out and do it just to shove it in their face and prove them wrong. So it was this sort of thing where I like, what's the most outrageous thing I could possibly think of to do? That seems really, really impossible. Like, super hard for a guy to get into, super hard for a guy, like, but is also somewhat, like, attainable for me within my kind of skill set. And that just stuck out. And that answer was the same answer I repeated to myself for, like, 30 days. And I was like, you know what? Fine. Let's try it. And, uh, yeah, I kind of made my way through. I was actually in the swinging scene for a while as a single guy. And, and I kind of used made connections with some of the women in that who had done, like, a scene or two in Melbourne. And for that, I got a director's number and then I, I pitched him and he gave me a shot and that kind of spiraled into, uh, yeah, me just pitching larger and larger, uh, companies and directors until basically I didn't need to start, need to pitch anyone anymore. They started hiring me.
1: Interesting. And so what's the industry actually like? Because I think there's a lot of perceptions and judgments and it's a very hot, hotly debated thing. So what's the industry actually like once you got into it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the biggest things, misconceptions about the industry is it's like, it's just full of, it's exploitative to women. That's something I hear all the time that it's like, that women in porn are trafficked into porn and that it's exploitative of women and stuff. I'm here to tell you guys, like hundred percent of the women I have worked with are there of their own free will and their own volition. Like they make the choice to get into the industry. Like the managers, the talent managers in Los Angeles, they don't have to recruit anybody. They're inundated with applications from young women across America. So it's the the conception very, the you know perception is very very wrong. Now I'm talking about professional pornography here. I'm not talking. There are there are and there has been you know quite scandalous stuff happening on uh, on Pornhub. Been discovered on Pornhub in the last couple of years where there was a lot of like exploitation material, abuse material that was put on Pornhub. Yeah, and that shit is absolutely you know no one in the industry would support that in any way, shape or form. So I think it's important for me to make a distinction between like the stuff that ends up on the internet and then what is considered like the actual professional industry where we're doing like, you know, model releases and, and you know, selling out tax forms and doing all this kind of stuff. It's a very professional industry. And for that reason, the women are very safe in it. Got, obviously, every, every now and then there's like a director who gets a bad reputation or some guy acts like a jackass on set. But basically, everyone is there of their own free will and their own volition and so it's not exploitative in that sense. If anything, the dudes are exploited because the women make twice as much money as the dudes easily, at least twice as much money as the dudes. And the dude's responsible for the scene. If the, right. guy, isn't, isn't, if the guy can't do his job, there isn't, there isn't a scene. So the perception of the industry is kind of interesting like that. But it's the world's most relaxed work environment. I think in a <laughs> weird way, like, like uh, dick jokes go down really well. Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of paperwork, a lot more paperwork than you think. Uh, Like I said, model releases and and tax forms and things like that. And from the dude's perspective, it's a ton of waiting around because the guy has to wait for the girl to get her makeup done. Uh, Then she does photos by herself and then they set up the lighting then they said we have to do all the dialogue and then we have to do this and we have to do that. Yeah, so you sit there and waiting for like two, three, four hours at a time before anything fun starts to happen. So
1: sounds super sexy and very conducive yeah. for boners. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was like, you're describing this whole thing. I was like, I feel like I'm walking into a government office where I'm going to fuck <laughs> in front of people. Like Jesus.
0: <laughs> yeah, a little, a little bit.
1: I'm still like that. Yeah. So okay, so it's it's uh it's a pretty heavily female dominated industry, right? I think that most people. Would very would much, agree. And, I'll, and,
0: I'll, and that's the other thing I'll add is that it's it's extremely left leaning politically and socially. I mean, it's it's based in California. The industry hub is California, which is unsurprising that those two things correlate. In the same way that, like, it's unsurprising that you know companies like Google and Facebook have like a left leaning political slant because mm-hmm. they're all the headquarters are all based in California. So the, the, the adult industry is exactly the same. Hmm. Yeah. So you can't, you basically can't, uh, if you came out and I had to keep, this is why for five years, you know, shooting in in, in the porn industry and stuff, I couldn't speak my political leanings or anything out loud because I'm, you know, right wing when it comes to that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I would have immediately lost my job had I expressed my opinion. So people in the industry who are kind of more, you know, white leaning in their, in their, you know, politics, economics or whatever, they learn to keep their mouth shut very quickly.
1: Hmm. And do you think that the industry is more left-leaning simply because the nature of, of the business that it's that the that the porn industry is more socially accepted within the political left than totally. in the political right? Totally, totally 100%. Totally. I have more questions on that front, but I think <laughs> <laughs> one of one of the things that I found interesting is just what you were talking about that it's there's a lot of women that are there by choice and it's been fascinating Like I was doing, uh, I did a little short mini episode on the podcast that, uh, reviewing the data from Pornhub from 2022 and just doing like a little bit of like an analysis and a commentary. One of the things that I found was fascinating wasn't Pornhub necessarily. It was OnlyFans and that OnlyFans had generated like $4.8 billion in revenue, Yep, which was astounding to me. I was like, that is a shit ton of money. And so I get, you know, I get why a lot of women are going into that space. It seems like it's probably oversaturated by now. But what was it like for you as a as a guy to enter into the space and, you know, are are women in the industry treated different from men? What's the expectations of men and then, then we'll we'll talk about some logistics in a sec.
0: Yeah, they're, t- they're treated very very differently. They got the like I said the 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 name of the game in terms of getting works for a guy is about reputation and, uh, and performance, right? Whereas with you know, if you if you screw up, it's very very hard for you to get rehired again by that same director. Um, you got to be very polite. You got to watch your manners. Be 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 very respectful to the director, the people who are actually paying your check. With the women, they don't have to be as careful. Uh, they can some sometimes they can walk up late because some they can be rude to the other people on set, and it doesn't it won't affect their career very much if at all uh, because they are the product. They're the thing that the customer wants. And mm. that is what dictates whether or not they get work. It's got nothing to do with like the, the, the opinion of anybody or the reputation amongst other co-stars or like people in the industry. Whereas with the guys, that's entirely dependent upon uh, their, their line of work or how much work they get is dep- entirely dependent upon that. With the, uh, yeah, with the whole OnlyFans thing, it's interesting. It was this perfect storm where lockdowns were happening all over the world. Everyone had to stay at home. No one could go to work. And so you have got this perfect storm of two things: all these guys sitting at home lonely and bored, and then you've got all these girls who are now out of a job. And they're like, "Well, what can I do to make some money?" And all of a sudden, within within the space of a month, OnlyFans became a household name. OnlyFans had been around for three years prior to 2020, really, at least three years. It's been it's been around for, for longer than that. And then, in the space of a month, bang! Like it became a household name, and you started seeing all these legacy, all these people who had kind of gotten on the bandwagon early are the ones that if they figured the game out, they stuck with it. They're the ones who are pulling in like six, sometimes seven figures a month. But you can you can see graphs of like the income distribution on OnlyFans and it's a very, very exponential graph. Like it's the top 0.01% who are making any money. Mm-hmm. And the bottom like 5% make under like, I've seen it for the graph recently. Like the bottom like 90% make less than $500. Right. Among, yeah, I think you know, I, I think I've seen
1: that graph too. Yeah, there's extremely like
0: extremely lopsided yeah. in terms of income. But it's a, and unfortunately, it's a seductive like premise. That's why so many women have signed up for it. They're like because they, all they see is these stories of women making six or seven figures a month. I'm like, oh, well, I can do that. Like I can all I have to do is sit at home and take photos in laundry, and I can get six seven figures a month. It's not quite that easy. It's a business like anything else. Yeah, right. It takes hard work. It takes it takes. An understanding of marketing, it takes a very good understanding of sales and human psychology and and the actual product that you're really selling is a relationship. You're not actually selling. Most women on OnlyFans, especially the ones that make the big bucks, they're not actually selling sex or or lewd material or masturbation material. They're actually selling a a quasi-relationship to the Hmm. fan that they're interacting with. Can Can you say more about that and why that's important? Yeah, absolutely. Because... I mean, think about what what made the defense blow up in the first place. It was all these dudes sitting at home, very very lonely, single men, unable to go out and socialize anymore because everything's all the all the bars are closed, all the restaurants are closed. Everyone's in, in the house. Okay, great. Now now all these dudes are lonely, sitting around horny, not not just horny, but also lonely and lacking that companionship, lacking that that relationship. Plus, on top of that, even now after the uh, everyone's you know was allowed out of the house again, it's uh, the the dating marketplace, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Yeah. is very, very skewed in favor of guys who are ultra successful relative to the norm. And so that makes the average guy's options even less. So what's he to do? Guys need female companionship. They need that. They really, they truly do. It's not just about getting their rocks off for guys. Guys genuinely need companionship and nurture, that nurturing female energy. And so what do they turn to? They turn to things like OnlyFans to get that. And the women who make the most money on that platform are the ones who are able to nurture a relationship with a guy online. That way, like they'll they'll learn, you know, where he works, what, like what his dog's name is, when his birthday is, what his favorite hobbies are, what his favorite music is, what he likes to eat. Like they'll remember, and they'll keep a list of all of these things. Hmm. Or at least the person who is typing in on her behalf on that account will remember all these things, and so that they can create that. The feeling of a very personal relationship between the model and the guy. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised, man, at the number of men nowadays who think that OnlyFans is some kind of dating app. They treat it as such. They treat it like it's a dating app now, mm-hmm. which is really, really surprising to me. That they, in spite of the fact that they know what that, that there's a monetary exchange uh, between, like her attention is attached to how much money the guy gives her, right? That they still think that there's some potential for a romantic, meaningful, intimate relationship there with the model who's on the other end of the camera.
1: Yeah, it is strange. I mean, it it makes sense in some ways because it's like the next step from porn, you know, which is very low risk, low barrier to entry, seemingly high reward, right? Sexually that you get to get off as as a dude. And then you add in this emotional component in a time where Uh, you know, I think human beings in general are are more isolated than ever before, but I think men especially are more isolated. You know, there's a lot of data and research coming out that's showing that, right, it's like 15% of American men don't have a best friend, don't have a close friend. You know, the majority of men only have one close male friend where, you know, whereas 40, 50 years ago, something like 55% of men had six or more close friends. And so we can see this kind of dwindling of the male population having real close attachments and relationships. And it it does seem like, you know, what do you do when you're lonely? You know, it's like, well, all of a sudden, if you have this online portal where you can go and talk to a woman who's kind of like the girl next door and is feigning a relationship with you, it's like, well, that's going to kind of create this illusion that it's solving the loneliness that you're experiencing. I, I don't know if that resonates with you over that feels true, but that's, that's kind of been my take on it.
0: Yep, I think that's a very accurate take. And, and the other thing it also does is it kind of gives guys the ability to interact with a woman of that, be- of a very, very beautiful woman with absolutely zero chance of rejection. Mm. If he just if he pays, the mo- if he pays the money, she'll pay attention to him. Yep. There's no risk involved. If that same beautiful woman was walking, walking past him on the street, there is a like social risk or like an inherently, you know, maybe there's a little bit of anxiety or, or neck nerves or whatever you want to call it associated with walking up and saying hello to that woman. And there's the, always the potential of rejection. very, yes. And in most cases, a very, very high chance of rejection, especially if she's an extremely beautiful woman. So guys have this, now have this ability to, to access a woman like that with, with that fear and that risk taken away. So it's all reward and no risk. Which well, is not a healthy way to live as a man. I,
1: and I would imagine that I would, like, I've, I've worked with some men who, you know, have spent a lot of money on OnlyFans or cam girls and or escorts and stuff like that. And I, I think one of the interesting things that some of those guys have reported is that it creates this false sense that they can get women that they might not be able to get in real life, right? Right. In in quotation marks. Because you're paying this woman through OnlyFans who, you know, is just like this idealized pedestaled version of who you would ultimately want to have sex with. But then there's this this disconnection where like in real life, that woman's probably not going to give you the time of day, depending on who you are, right? And so I think that that creates this kind of fucked up sense of inner, I would imagine, insecurity of like, oh, I can get these women online, but I have to pay for them. But in real life, I can't land that woman. Like what, just from your perspective, we're going to touch on this and then go a different route. But what do you think that does to a guy's sexual psychology and the way that he views himself, his personality and his identity? Yeah, if a guy guy doesn't think
0: that he deserves that woman, he is going to run into all kinds of issues in the bedroom. His anxiety is going to be through the roof. He's going to have this nagging voice in the back of his head saying, you don't deserve this. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, she isn't, really, she isn't really attracted to you. Uh, think, think of all these the negative self-talk a guy could possibly have in the bedroom. And that is going to ultimately lead to his old boy downstairs not working properly, not rising to the occasion. Like, there's a reason that you know, like I said before, that that risk reward thing, right? When, when, as a guy, when you go through challenging things, when you overcome obstacles, when you, when you face adversity, face your fears, face anxiety and overcome that, there's a reason you feel amazing afterwards. You know, there's, there's no way of separating the feeling of accomplishment from the feeling of like risk or adversity or obstacle. Mm. The, those two things have to go hand in hand. And it's that overcoming of that obstacle or that, or that adversity or that anxiety that leads to that increase of self-esteem and confidence, which ultimately, in, in this case, talking to women or, or you know seducing a woman and getting her into the bedroom, that confidence translates over into the bedroom. When you know you're, you've attracted her into the bedroom, it will allow you to perform appropriately. Mm. If you do not have that self-confidence, if you do not have that belief, if you do not believe you are actually entitled to that beautiful woman, well, then you are probably going to have some issues in that department. And uh, yeah, I, I agree with what you were saying before. Like, it creates this this false sense of bravado where the guy thinks he can attract a woman like that. But deep down, like, he's he's kind of... He's trying to convince himself of that because deep down, he knows that out in the real world, if he went onto the street and talked to that same girl, he wouldn't be able to do it. So he's, they're really... In that situation, lying to themselves to mm. try and protect their own ego. And we all do this since everyone does this in some way, shape, or form with different things where they will they don't really truly test themselves because it's much more comfortable for somebody to hold on to whatever their current worldview is, even if it's flawed and incorrect, it's far more comfortable for them to to, to do that and try to like defend it. Rather than risk having that worldview absolutely shattered by <laughs> testing himself in the real world, you know whether it be testing himself by you know talking to a beautiful woman, going out, and starting a business, making money, uh, testing himself in the gym or, or in a boxing gym or in an MMA gym, you know up against another opponent, it's having your your ego tested is a very healthy thing, especially mm. for young men, I think.
1: I agree entirely. And we're going to come back to that during the dating conversation, but I have a couple of questions that I want to explore. One specifically around porn, and then we'll move on to dating and then we'll move on to like, you know, let's call it sexual, sexual mastery in the bedroom. That's how we're going to close the conversation. Tell me a little bit about the, the difference between sex during a scene versus sex with, a with a partner. I think that's one of the big questions that people have.
0: Yeah. It's, it's night and day, man. Um, that was one of my one of the best things, actually. When I when I got out of the industry, sex became a, a, so much more fun hmm. because it's no longer like a chore. It's no longer work, and you know you no longer have a director telling you what to do and how to
1: fuck. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> sex- that, that must be weird. <laughs> what's What's that can, like? Just touch on that for a sec. It can get annoying,
0: uh, but it's only it's only really the first time you work with a director. Because the first time you work as a director, you're kind of figuring out, okay, what kind of shots does he like? What kind of angles does he like? How does he like the scene? So, and, and what's the scripts that he usually, like the kind of scripts he shoots. So you, know, I need to get these certain shots and these angles. So the first time is a lot of like me learning to work with him and him learning to work with me so we can like, okay, I can get the shots he needs. Like I can turn the woman the way he needs to see with his camera angles. And then after that, we kind of have an understanding. So he will be a lot more patient with me and I'll be a lot more patient with him. And we'll, it'll be a lot more enjoyable and fun. The first time is a lot of learning. But then, yeah, once I, once I got out and I got back into like just casually dating and things, I was like, oh God, this is like, it, it reminded me of like why I was such a, such a sexual guy in the first place, because you're able to enjoy and indulge in sex the way you want to. For, mm. for all of companies that I worked for, I, I wasn't allowed to have sex the way I wanted to have sex. With the exception of like kink.com, who ended up shooting me quite a bit, perfect, uh, perfect alignment with with kink.com in, in regards to the way I would like to to be passionate with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't do some of that all of that more kind of extreme, let's say, dominant stuff with certain companies. Mm-hmm. So it would, t- it would kind of restrict you a little bit. So uh, yeah, it's a lot more freeing. Porn sex is fun because you get to do like you get to engage in like all kinds of interesting, weird scenarios that you probably never would have had before. Obviously, like multiple women being one of them. And uh, honestly, like, if you can manifest that... Man- I hate the word manifest. I shouldn't use the word manifest because it's not like you're thinking it into existence. It's all, it's all of a invent- sudden
1: like the, like the you know, like mid-30s or 40s white girls, spirituality has entered into the uh, conversation. Yeah. You know, with so, the manifest uh, coffee mug.
0: Let's say if you can cultivate those kind of fun scenarios in, in your real everyday life, it, it is infinitely more enjoyable.
1: Agreed. hundred yes. percent agree. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you think porn impacts a man's libido, a man's ability to pick up women and how porn might impact a man's ability to get what he wants in the bedroom. Cause I've heard you talk about this a few times and I was actually very surprised with what you said. And I was like, yes, okay, this, I, I like this. So how do you think porn impacts these different areas of a man's life? Yeah, it definitely screws with a guy's libido, screws
0: with his, his reward circuitry in his brain, and I do get a bit. Of, I get a. I get a bit of flack from uh, previous co-stars and, and people who are in my industry now. Uh, so like, for, what are you for, doing for saying this stuff? And it's not. It's uh, like I'm not trying to like take. It's not like I'm trying to take money out of their, out of their mouths or you know, the, take with the roof away from their head. Let's be honest, they're not gonna run out of money anytime soon. They're totally fine. Like there's not there's not a short supply of men consuming adult content. That is not a problem. I am far more concerned with the people with, with especially younger guys who are growing up on mobile phones with TikTok brain, let's say, who are constantly plugged into that and they're constantly habitually consuming hardcore, high streaming, like 4K adult content on their phones from a young age when they're teenagers and their brains are still developing. That is a can of worms that we've opened. And we have no idea what the long-term ramifications are going to be. We're starting to see it because you can see graphs of the advent of websites like Pornhub and uh, and RedTube and Xvideos; these kind of what we call tube sites. That's what we refer to them in in the industry. You can see when those hit the internet and there's a skyrocketing rate of erectile dysfunction in men under the age of 30 from that moment onwards. Uh, So we already like that's a correlation, but there's a pretty good chance that there's a there's a causation there as well. Mm -hmm. So it definitely impacts that, and and we know the reason for that is that it it screws with the dopamine circuitry in the male brain. The novelty aspect of pornography is something that is very very hard to replicate in the real world with a one individual woman uh, in front of you who is not photoshopped and lit up perfectly and doing all kinds of freaky, kinky things and saying all kinds of freaky, kinky things. So when, you know, men who have a habitual porn habit end up getting with a woman, mm. sometimes they have premature ejaculation problems, sometimes they have erectile dysfunction problems, performance anxiety problems, even delayed ejaculation problems, all manner of issues in the bedroom can manifest from a guy consuming porn habitually like that. So that's what I, that's what I tell guys, the first time... If you have any problem at all in the bedroom whatsoever, the very first step you should take is to cut that out Mm. because at the very least, just give your brain the ability to reset. And I also tell them not just cut out like pornography, but also cut out TikTok, also cut out endless scrolling on social media because it does the same thing, though both of them screw with the same dopamine circuitry in your brain. One's probably a little bit more fun than the other one.
1: So, <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a little bit of a different reward there, yeah,
0: yeah. But uh, they they both cause the same problem. And when the dopamine receptors are not as active, or not as a, a, not as sensitive, your reward secretary isn't working properly. So your motivation doesn't work as well. You're not, you're not as motivated. You don't have as much drive and ambition to go out, hit the gym, build a business, talk to that pretty girl. All these things that that push your life into a positive direction are now dialed
1: down and dampened Mm. because of that one habit yeah i appreciate what you're saying because i think uh you know over the years i've seen a lot of men who maybe want a certain type of sexual sex life with their partner you know with their girlfriend with their wife etc and oftentimes porn is like this mistress in the relationship where when things aren't kind of going the way that they want, or it's not as frequent as they want, or they're afraid to actually go for what they want in the relationship. It's just like, I can just go watch porn and get off and watch the thing that I want versus push through what you were talking about before, which is like that risk, you know, that's natural with pursuing what we want, you know, that risk of like, okay, this is the type of sex that I want to have with my girlfriend or with my wife there's going to be some risk that's inherent in that, that I think porn makes a a very easy case for guys to just like check out and not have to go do that.
0: Um, Yeah, they'd they'd rather, you know, open up a tab on their browser than have a somewhat uncomfortable conversation for like a few minutes. 100%. 100%. Um,
1: I'm I'm curious how, one of the big questions, because I think I told you before we jumped on, I pulled my audience. You know, I have a, a membership platform with like hundreds of guys from around the world. And I pulled my Instagram audience. And one of the biggest questions that I got from men specifically was how you would talk to your son about porn and sex. And I thought that was really interesting, but it's a question that I get a lot. And I'm, I'm also curious, very curious to hear your take. So how would you approach that?
0: It's a very good question. So with, with pornography, I, I would porn specifically i'd make sure he knows everything i just mentioned so here's the problem with it here's what's gonna here's what's gonna do to your brain say this and i'd take i'd make the exact same argument for things like tiktok like i said or uh you know endless scrolling on instagram or endless scrolling on, on twitter so i'd make that exact same argument you gotta be, especially as a young man with a developing brain you've got to be very careful over this i'd also make the exact same argument for things like weed and and uh, alcohol i'd say <laughs> i'd avoid consuming them mate like this is gonna, this is going to have very negative ramifications uh, that you can't, it's you, you can't reverse, or it's going to be extremely hard to reverse and come back from that. Now, in terms of talking about actual sex, one, there's a massive difference between pornography and sex. <laughs> I make sure he fundamentally understands that. People, the people on, in pornography are, are acting; it's actors. They're doing, they're doing. It's kind of it's, actually, it's a combination between uh, acting and like extreme sports. Like they're doing things that are for, at at weird angles and weird, and weird trajectories for your viewing pleasure, not necessarily for each other's pleasure. I like, uh,
1: I like that description. Act, uh, acting in extreme sports. That's good, man. So, Thank uh, you.
0: <laughs> you can, you can, however, you can take some, you can take inspiration from, from pornography to spice up your own sex life. If there is something to be taken away from it, it is that it is the fact that you can use it as inspiration for like your own, your own bedroom. And, uh, Obviously, in a, in a consensual way, with your partner, who actually want, if she wants to actually indulge in it, and that involves having a conversation with her. And in, in regards to, uh, yeah, again, going down down the rabbit hole of talking about sex with you know like a teenager or a teenage boy or something like that, basically teaching him all the things that, I, that we didn't get taught as as kids ourselves. Man, like we got okay in Australia at least we got basic sex education, you know, understanding how pregnancy works, understanding how you know how the period works, understanding like why he's feeling you know these certain like feelings right now towards girls when he didn't have those feelings before, understanding the, the consequences of engaging in unprotected sex, be that pregnancy, be that STDs, but not trying to make him, uh, and I would endeavor to ha- have, you know, these kinds of adult conversations with my son without making him feel guilt or shame in any way about sex and about his sexual desires. Because I think that is very important, especially for young men. And I think a large part of the reason that men have problems in the bedroom, especially when it comes to expressing their desires and their fantasies and exploring, you know, maybe kinks with their partner that they might be interested in exploring, is that they have, they have ingrained shame and guilt around their sex drive and their sexual urges. Mm. And they express those through porn use because it's the computer or the, or the, or the mobile phone isn't shaming them and guilting them. For having those desires, so they they still have them. They're they not they're not going away, but they they found an outlet to indulge and engage in them without the fear of being shamed or guilted for them. So, I would start by saying, Look, there's not there's absolutely no shame and no guilt in, in you know in having sexual desires towards a woman. You shouldn't feel guilt or shame for it. You should be respectful and you should and should obviously be consensual and you should never you know, push a woman's boundary. And I'd teach him how to, uh, to know a woman's boundaries and how to recognize that, and how to uh, uh, make a woman feel comfortable and safe and secure with him so that she feels comfortable enough to participate in sex with him, which is also another important thing. We just get, young young boys today especially get, you know, they get taught that they're, they're the devil and they're evil and they're bad and they're all potential rapists, which is absolutely not the fucking case. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I swear on the show. I, uh, I just get a bit annoyed when people say that. I think there's nothing there's nothing worse you could do for a young man than to tell him in the middle of puberty, when he's just just starting to be interested in women, when he's just trying, starting to explore and, and develop his sexuality, to tell him that he is a potential rapist and he's a, he's going he's going to sexually assault women is absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely terrible. No, like 99.999% of men do not are, are not even physically capable of doing that to a woman it takes an especially sick and twisted and evil individual to even be aroused in the presence of a woman who is not interested in him in any way mm. i think it's it's absolutely disgusting that we tell young men that they are you know that they are bad and evil and, and such for having sexual desires towards women when no no man wants to to no man wants to be with a woman who does not want to be with him mm. no no healthy uh, a male wants that scenario. So, and I think instead we should be teaching young men to be protectors and providers for women, to be the kinds of men who prevent that from happening to her rather than trying to tell men, oh, we need to stop teaching what boy- we need to teach boys not to rape. You don't need to teach boys not to rape because boys aren't rapists. Boys are not running around trying to rape anybody. There are, but there's a particular subset of evil people who are inherently bad and they, they are screwed up in the head in that way, and we need to teach every other boy, every other man on the planet, to protect women from those guys. Mm. That's what we need to be doing. So there's a, a, a crash course in my curriculum for my, my future son on, on sex and uh, and then porn.
1: Now it's, it's great man. I mean, I, I have a two-year-old son, and so I've been you know this has been banging around in my head a little bit. as of late, you know I have some time, obviously, but I, I think I was reading data that a lot of young men today are finding porn between the ages of like nine and 12. Oh yeah and, way and way too early. It's insane to me. I mean the the amount of pornographic material a young boy can have access to within an hour, you know, today is more than like a full-grown man will have ever experienced in his lifetime, you know, yep. pretty much throughout human history. And so that kind of that kind of overwhelming the senses is I mean it's going to have a psychological impact. But I also appreciate what you're saying that you know there is this kind of demonization that has entered into our culture around men, around the masculine and and specifically around male sexuality. We're going to touch on that in a second, but I wanted to come back to something that you said, because I could almost hear my listeners being like, ask him about that, which was, you know, you, you were saying that you would teach your son. I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember it exactly, but something along the lines of basically like, you know, having a woman enter into the bedroom with you in a consensual way and the, the pieces that play into that. So what are some of those pieces? Because I think this is something that in our, in our modern culture, I think a lot of men are terrified. They're afraid to approach women. They're afraid to be more assertive. They're afraid to be direct. And they, you know, they're afraid that they'll maybe miss some cue along the way that's going to land them up on the front page. And so how do you map that out for men in today's culture and society to say, this is how you still be direct and assertive, but here's where some of the boundaries and here's where some of the consent plays in. So take take it away.
0: Yeah, so th- there's an interesting thing recently with the whole the whole Me Too movement, right? It's got a lot of guys like scared, shitless, especially younger guys, right? Because they see, you know, they'll see allegations, you know, sexual assault or grape on college campuses and in work and, and sexual harassment in the workplace and things like that. And rightfully so it's scaring the hell out of a lot of young men. And they're afraid to approach women. They're afraid to, to escalate things in some way, shape or form uh, in the bedroom. And that ultimately doesn't benefit anyone. Like, you're running around scared and women aren't having the sexual experiences they want to have. Women are, women are not having that masculine polarity in their bedroom or in their courtship or in their relationships because the guys are, are afraid of, they're walking on eggshells this whole time. They're afraid of escalating things in a more intimate, passionate direction. So, what's the guy to do? Like, how is he supposed to push things in that direction? And, and under, without any experience, too, how is he supposed to understand the mm. cues of a woman who is consenting? Because a lot of the times, despite what you know, feminists will tell you, a lot of the time consent is not verbal. This idea, and we, we, we knew this, people, people knew this fundamentally for the longest time. Like, we didn't, previous generations, we the human, human species has been around for thousands and thousands of years. We didn't need lessons in, like, verbal sexual consent in order to procreate for thousands and thousands of years. And you can't convince me that people have been sexually assaulted for thousands and thousands of years. You know, we've had loving families, loving relationships between men and women since the dawn of time. And, you know, our ancestors were able to figure this stuff out without too much of an issue. To me, what, what I need to tell, what I would tell young guys is, look, you've, you've got to learn to pay attention to what women physically respond to more so than purely relying upon, like, what's the, what's the exact phrase it's called? Like, like overwhelming, outstanding, like verbal consent. Because no, no one wants to go into a bedroom scenario and sit down with a checklist of do's and don'ts and, and write out a contract. That is not how intimacy works. It's not how, it's not, that's not sexy for the man or the woman. A woman wants a guy who just gets it. A woman wants a woman wants a guy who can read her body language and understand when she is receptive to something or where she's not receptive. And I think a concept that can help guys a lot is this idea of green light, yellow light, red light, or, or amber light, whatever, whatever Americans call it. So there's so there's certain things which are an absolute green light, which is you know if a woman tells you you know like I want you. Please do this, that. That's a like very, very obvious verbal consent. That's an obvious green light. And no one has a problem inter- interpreting that signal. And those are things that are obvious red lights. When a woman is tensing up physically, when a woman is obviously giving you a very, very verbal no, or I don't want to do that, or please stop, or anything like that, it should never get to that stage. But in, but in case it accidentally does get to that stage because you're not, as a man, you're not very experienced or you might, might have made a mistake or you might have misread some verbal cues, or some body language cues. Okay, that's an obvious red light. We stop. That's when you completely stop. But then there's, there's the, the amber light, the yellow light, the middle the middle situation where I think Bill Burr did a really good comedy piece on this Once He did a great skit on this where it was like the, uh, the concept of no means no. And women will betray this concept themselves all the time. Women, will, women are the biggest culprits of this. A woman Women will say no means no, but then when they're on a date with a guy that they find attractive, It'll be, no, stop. But what that actually means, yes, that actually means please proceed. And And it's in a flirtatious way. And it's done in a way that says what's really being communicated there is she's saying, I want you to proceed, but I don't want to feel like a slut. I want you to proceed, but I don't want to feel like I am responsible for this escalating in a sexual direction. I want you to be the man and escalate it in that direction. The learning to recognize those that that middle way, that those those amber amber lights, those yellow lights, that is the part which gets a lot of guys confused. And socialization in general is important for that. You can't learn these skills by sitting at home and only interacting with women through dating apps and only interacting with women through like Facebook Messenger or Instagram DMs. You have to get in front of women in the real world and have female friends and be and socialize with women. To learn and understand when they're flirting with you, to learn
1: to understand when they're
0: when when they are receptive to physical
1: escalation. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm very grateful for having been in the dating market pre Tinder. You know, it really it really forced me. And like my buddies and I, would, like we would go to the clubs or to bars or you know just like just out. You know, just being out and approaching women and talking to them. Grocery stores, you know, the gym, the yoga studio, like, didn't matter, but it's, you know, it's a very confronting thing at first. I remember being a young man as it's like, oh man, like, I gotta go talk to that woman. <laughs> and I remember the like tension in my body of like, okay, she's looked over at me like three fucking times. And this, you know, it's sort of like, I can feel in my body that she, like she's wanting me to come over and talk to her, but there's still this huge resistance. And so, you know, I can only imagine being a young man today where a lot of those social cues and that socialization that you're talking about has been stripped away. And what we're left with is, uh, you know, trying to interact with people digitally. And then when you get in person, it's just a complete shit show, which we're going to circle back around to this, this mastery piece of like, you know, dating relationships in the bedroom. But that kind of segues me into this question that I actually really wanted to get your take on, which is how do you think AI is going to impact porn? Because AI is like, it's here and it's coming. And it's like, it's a real thing that I think is going to change a lot of industries. So how, if at all, do you see AI impacting the porn space and, and what do guys need to know? How do we sort of um, not protect ourselves, but prepare ourselves maybe? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I've been in chats with a couple of guys who
0: are they're kind of playing around and experimenting with uh, AI in that space in particular. So I think there's two things that are going to happen. One, we're going to see, in particular, OnlyFans accounts uh, being created, which are purely digital women. We'll see entire agencies pop up, which will be purely digital women. And even the chat functionality between the customer and the, the woman will be entirely run by an AI script. So not only is the woman fake, but the interaction is fake. It's not, even, not even a real person on the other end doing typing as well. So uh, wow. I mean, right now, right now we do that. Like right now, most of the, basically every single one, I guarantee you, every single one of the, the, the biggest OnlyFans creator accounts the woman isn't the one doing the typing in the first place. It's her assistants or it's, or it's 10 Filipino assistants all taking turns doing shifts doing all the typing. Because no, if you just think about the numbers, like a woman who has like 100,000 or you know, thousands of subs are only fair account, She can't physically, there's not enough time in a day for one woman to sit there and type with that many people. It's just not possible. But still, some guys will delude themselves into thinking that it is possible. Now, AI is going to step in and and take over that problem. Uh, It's going to create women that are like perfect in any way that a man particularly wants, whatever, like catered to his exact fantasy desire. Mm. It's going to do two things. It's going to push a lot of women out of that industry because they won't be able to compete with an artificial woman who is perfect in every way, shape or form for that particular guy. And so in that regard, I think it's also going to like Increase the profitability of the women who are really good at creating that realistic, personalized connection. Mm. The women who are just selling purely on like sexuality, even if they do have a giant following, they're going to get replaced very, very quickly by the AI stuff. And the ones that specialize more in the relationship, the the, the girlfriend experience, shall we say, I think they're going to be double. They're going to double down and they're going to utilize the AI to their advantage a lot.
1: It's fascinating, man. I mean, we could go down that rabbit hole, but um, we're going to go down a different rabbit hole, which is bedroom performance. You know, there was, there was obviously the, the standard questions that guys were asking in terms of like how to last longer, how to have better erections, those types of things. I think we should definitely touch on those. Where I wanted to begin was getting her in the mood. This was one of the questions that I got, like, I think I got a few dozens of them of like, how do I get her in the mood? And then where do you think guys go wrong? And what can guys aim for instead? Cool. So getting her in the mood is, there's, there's a couple of different approaches you would take. And this depends upon
0: what your partner responds best to. Now, some, some women really, really enjoy a guy who basically just manhandles them, takes them like a beast, You know, that kind of unbridled passion. Think, uh, you know, think of like a, a Roman legionnaire coming back from decades at war, coming home back to his Italian bride, like that kind of barbarian energy I like, to, I like to describe it as, by just leading, being passionate, and being more, let's say, physically dominant with a woman, if she is the, the very, a very submissive type of woman, the kind of woman who responds incredibly well to that, well, that's going to get her in the mood basically instantly. Now, a lot of Western women in particular aren't necessarily as naturally submissive like that anymore. So, for them to kind of get a lot more aroused and a lot more turned on, you kind of have to use what I, what's known as coquetting. So, and this works, and this, this will also work basically with anyone anyway. And it's a fantastic skill set to develop in general, anyway, in my opinion, in regards to sex. So, coquetting is, is really what strippers do. So, think about this sexualized push and pull. So, think of what a stripper does when she's giving a guy lap dance. Like she's rubbing the tits in the guy's face, she's rubbing her ass on his crotch. But, he, and the, but he, the moment he tries to touch her, she slaps his hand right? She can touch you, but you can't touch her, right? And so it's, it's pushing and pulling the exact same time, exciting him and letting him down. You can do the exact same thing to women. And women, it really, really enjoy that. As a matter of fact, women enjoy it far more than men do. So, you know, it's as successful as strippers are, you should learn from that and you should apply that to women in your own uh, romantic relationships. So just one, one, you know, a basic example is if you're Passionately making out with a woman, and you're es- you're physically escalating, you know, just with kissing, and maybe she starts to uh, to you know maybe maybe touch you or hold you or be more be more physical with her hands. You be the one to disengage and break it off, not in a in a nervous, anxious way, but in a confident, calm way that shows that you're not needed. shows that you because one of the best ways, and you know, I've heard and this is something I've had confirmed by women, is one of the best ways to be a good kisser, for example. This all ties in together. One of the best ways to be a good kisser as a guy is to be the one, a simple, simple little thing, is just to be the one to break off the kiss first. Simple as that. It's not, you don't have to get all bogged down in like, how much tongue do I use? Do I suck on the lower lip? How, how much, how long is it asked? How, how, you know, all these little intricacies and technicalities. Yeah, there's little things you can do here and there, which make a, a guy a better kisser in general, according to women, at least. Ultimately, the best thing you can do is just be the one who breaks the kiss off first and creates that sexual tension. Mm. Because sexual tension is all about exciting her and then breaking off and letting her chase, creating that space, that space of sexual tension, that gap, that void. She wants to fill that void. And she will fill that void by getting closer to you, re-engaging the kiss with you, touching you, or whatever. But that's the general idea of coqueting, is exciting her and then taking it away. Exciting her and then taking it away. And this is not done in a, minute. it's not, this is not manipulation. This is not bad. This is fun for everybody involved. Like women enjoy that just as much, if not more than the guy is going to enjoy it whilst doing it. It's fun. It's playful. This is what flirting actually is. But <laughs> people seem to have forgotten this. So for guys to, uh, who are interested in, you know, how to escalate a bit more physically with a girl. And this is, and this is consensual too. It covers a lot of bases because you're not pushing things too much. You're letting it get exciting and then you're breaking it off. And by breaking it off, you allow her to, she doesn't have to verbally say this, but you allow her to let you know that it's a green light. Okay, cool. Now we can Now we can baby step it a little bit further and we can disengage and see if she's still enjoying it. And we can just repeat this process. And then we're not pushing too much. We're not break, pushing a boundary. We're not going anywhere she doesn't want to go. But we're letting her enjoy herself. And we're staying in control of the interaction. We're not, we're not, Letting ourselves get too excited, we're not letting ourselves get too needy or too desperate, right? Because that's very unattractive. So that exciting her and then breaking it off, exciting her and then breaking it off. Super, super consistent. Very, very easy to learn. Very easy to do once you once you once you've seen it done once. Once you've done it yourself once and you've seen the results, you're like, oh, okay, this is super easy. I'll just keep doing this.
1: And what you're referring to is mostly mm-hmm. like within the build up, not within the act of of intercourse. Well, both.
0: Yeah. It works. It works everywhere. It works incredibly well with the build up obviously with kissing, uh, you know, with being a bit more fond, like fondling a bit more physical. But you can also apply this exact same principle to penetration. You can apply the exact same principle to oral sex. You can apply it to everything. So it's, it's a great tool to have in your toolkit at all times. Because I, I guarantee it, there's not, a, there's not a woman on this planet who will not enjoy that.
1: Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like a form of edging almost. You know, it's like getting closer and closer and then backing off and then closer and closer and then backing off. Exactly. It's a, uh, what, what, what would he, someone giving her blue ovaries? Is that, that would be I <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> blue ovaries. That's good. That's good. Um, you know, what's, what's interesting. And do you have a hard stop in like nine or do you have a couple more? I'm good. I'm good. You're good. Okay, cool. Cause I just, I have some ground to cover that I think is, is important. And I'm loving this conversation. So what's fascinating. Do you know who Ayella is? A E L L A. She's like she a Twitter account. Yeah. She's got a big Twitter account. And she was an escort, a sex worker for a while. She also, she kind of still does that, but she also is like a data scientist and she runs these big polls and surveys. And I I replicated one of her polls and I was curious to get your, your thoughts on this. So she ran this poll to see, you know, how much women want a sexually dominant man versus how much men want to be sexually dominant. And what she found was that there are more women who want sexually dominant men than there are men who are wanting to be sexually dominant. And I replicated this on my Instagram profile and it got pretty much the exact same results where there were more women wanting men to be sexually dominant than men who want to be sexually dominant. So that first off actually kind of surprised me. I don't know if that surprises you, but it kind of shocked me. I'm curious to get your thoughts on like why that is and, and then for the guys who are wanting to be a little bit more Dominant, and for the women that are that are wanting that, how do we bridge that gap? How, like, what does that conversation sound like? What do we do, et cetera? Yeah. So
0: the the reason, I think, I mean, I think it's fundamentally a biological urge for women to want to have a guy who is more dominant. I don't think I don't think that is should be that surprising. With with a stronger sex, phys- with a physically stronger sex of the two, like we're the providers and the protectors, she's the nurturer. So obviously, it makes total sense that a woman would want a guy who is more dominant. In, in, a, in the way I try to explain this, like in terms of evolutionary psychology, is being more dominant in the bedroom is kind of your way of demonstrating the male capacity for violence. Doesn't mean you are violent, especially doesn't mean you're actually violent to her. But if I'm able to, you know, pick a woman up, toss her onto the bed, like pull her hair, you know, maybe spank her here and there, these kind of things, these are all physically dominant acts. And it shows that I am definitely stronger than her and that is an attractive trait she wants to be around a guy who can protect her she wants to be around a guy who's physically stronger than her so that all makes total perfect sense if you if you really think about it from an evolutionary perspective cool that's why women are uh, definitely attracted to guys who are more dominant in the bedroom. and and on top of that the fact that we live in a very feminist society now and women are a lot more women are in roles of like leadership uh, managerial positions like CEO types are you know, like the boss babe kind of stuff where they're taking on a lot more responsibility in their everyday life, that, that only amplifies that desire mm. for a more dominant man in the bedroom when they're in their private life. They don't want to be the one taking control of the bedroom. They don't want to be responsible. They don't want to have to make all the decisions and lead. They're doing that all day at their work. They want to just let go and, and finally be just relax and be at that moment and have the guy take control, and lead her through that experience. Right? So that's the female side. Of it. Uh, the male side of it, the, the lack of guys wanting to be dominant, I can understand this, and it ties back into what we were saying before about the whole me-too thing. A lot of dudes are afraid to do it. A lot of dudes are worried that if they do pursue that, that they're going to get in trouble. They're going to end up with some kind of allegation or a sexual assault charge or some, some, something like this, some, some false sexual assault charge, I should say. So that, that's one of the reasons why guys are not interested in pursuing things like that. The other thing is they don't think women the, the narrative that we're we're feeding guys through most mainstream media today is counterintuitive to that. It's telling it's telling men that they women don't want that. It's telling men that women want this lovey, dovey like think of every the Hollywood sex scene you've ever seen. It's just like they, he slowly lowers her onto the bed and then it, it fades to black and the camera pans away and somehow he, she's pregnant.
1: Ryan Gosling, you got to you know, make out in the rain first and write about her in a notebook before sex yeah. happens. Yeah.
0: So that's what, that's what men have been taught. So of course they're not uh, uh, as interested in being a lot more dominant in the because they've, they've never had any positive affirmation of it. They've never had any positive affirmation about, oh, this actually turns her off. This is actually what, this is what actually gets her off. And I know this because I teach guys this. I teach guys how to be more dominant. And more importantly, I teach them how to be comfortable in being dominant. Because Mm. if the man is not comfortable in what he's doing, then she sure as hell won't be comfortable in it. He has to go first. He has to be confident in what he's doing physically, like the technique, the the execution of that technique, be it it hair pulling, spanking, whatever, all the plethora of things. So he has to be comfortable in executing it so that she can feel comfortable and safe in him doing it to her. Mm -hmm. Whatever he feels, she's going to feel at the same time. She's going to pick up on, off of that that emotion that he is feeling in that moment.
1: So, can you can you say that one one more time? But like directly to men, like guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So again, okay, so once again, whatever emotional state you're feeling in that moment during sex, she is going to pick up on that, and she's going to feel that same way. So, if you're feeling nervous and anxious, she is going to feel nervous and anxious in the bedroom with you. If you're feeling calm and aroused. And confident, she's so, going to feel calm and aroused and confident in your ability to lead her through that sexual experience.
1: Yeah. Awesome. What surprised me about it was how, not how few, but I think the big discrepancy for me was that there were less men that wanted to be sexually dominant. Like that just sort of, and, but then I, you know, I think I sort of sat back and I was like, okay, testosterone rates are plummeting you know, like there's, I think on average, just men's testosterone is just going down so much that it's it's very different. And then the the public narrative is very much like women want a loving, kind man, which of course they still want a loving, kind man. And, you know, sexually there is still that desire for dominance, which it was interesting because I released the results of the poll and I had dozens of men messaging me being like, what the fuck, like, <laughs> I feel like I've just been like living under a hole. And I was like, uh, yeah, this is, I mean, this is why I put this poll out there. So I'm like, can you can you send me the exact wording that you used to the poll? Because yes. I want to recreate it on my Instagram now. Yeah, hundred 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 percent. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you the the whole thing. So let's talk about creating that dynamic, creating that polarity within a relationship. Right. What are some of the sort of like do's and don'ts around creating that, that dynamic—if you're a guy that's like, okay—I want to be a little bit more dominant in the bedroom, a little bit more assertive, but maybe there's some some worry there. Where do you begin? Yeah, again, I think
0: coquetting is a very good place to start. Like I mentioned before, this idea of sexual push pull, right? Because you can you can tie into that verbal commands. So, because first of all, coquetting is a is a way to get her excited and aroused, right? And when she's excited and aroused, she's going to be a lot more receptive to the idea of you leading her around and telling her what to do and and giving her verbal instructions and commands, right? So you can start with the verbal stuff rather than starting with necessarily the physical dominant side of things, right? And that can be as simple as telling her, look, sit here, do this, pull your panties to one side, grab it. Like, you know what I'm saying? These little, little tiny verbal commands, which you would have done, these are things you probably would have done anyway during the course of, of intercourse, during the act of sex. You probably would have done all these things anyway. Just getting comfortable in verbalizing them and mm-hmm. making them, which it basically makes them like a command, and an order, an instruction, right? Changes the frame and the dynamic between the two of you, where you are the one who's leading and in control, and she is the one who's going along for the ride and enjoying herself. In terms of the guy's frame of mind, it's really like you're providing an experience for her. You don't need to think of it as she is doing this for me it's really the other way around. Like you're providing her with an incredible experience. In, in like the key community, there's a very, very strong emphasis on the idea that the, the, this, people are aware of like the DOM sub dynamics, like the dominant and the submissive. It's very, very, uh, a very common, you know, turn of phrase in the, the key community that the, the sub is actually the one with all the power. The submissive is the one that is actually you know, says no, says stop, has control over where, where things get, how far things get taken. The DOM is actually the one that is just, Creating this sort of orchestra for, so I think an easy way to start is really is really just des- describing, physically verbally describing and giving commands to things that you would already do anyway, and then that can start you can start to build from that foundation and take things a bit further with verbal commands and then obviously with physical instruction with let's say physical dominance and physical uh, being a bit more, uh, yeah, handsy. I mean, there's lots of lots of. I'm trying to give you guys like a big, like a more, a more of a broad, like top-down, like holistic approach, rather than just saying do X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, there's, a little,
0: there's a ton of X, Y, Z things I could just rattle off. Yeah, I think it's better to understand like the general principle so that you can then go and do things your own way.
1: Yeah, I think I think that part's super important, right? Like finding your own sexual identity or your own sexual style. I think it's super important. What I've told a couple of the guys in the community is like practice outside of the bedroom with commands, you know, just simple things like come over here, you know, or give me a kiss, you know, kiss my neck, give me a hug. Like, you know, just like simple things, because even doing that for some guys is really confronting, you know, just sort of stating, just sort of stating those simple things and sort of practice it out of a moment where, there's not as much pressure, you know, is, can, can be super helpful for, for some guys. But um, okay, I can't skip past these other pieces. We'll probably come back to this. The next thing that I, that I wanted to talk about was the difference between attraction and arousal. And this is something that I talked about recently and created like a little a mini episode on, but I'm curious to get your take. Is there a difference between a woman's attraction and arousal and what would that difference be?
0: Um, I think if you want to get really semantic about it, I think an honest way of looking at it is attraction is, is kind of like the, pro- the protector provider side of things. And arousal is like yeah, the genetic side of it, like the need for the seed. Because there's the protector and the lover, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of the guy who gets her panties wet and then the guy who she wants to build a future with.
1: Cause it's, can I just interject there? So I just, I don't mean to keep interrupting, but it does seem interesting that Hollywood sells a different version than what women buy in romance novels, right? Cause you've got like Ryan Gosling in this movie and then you've got 50 shades of gray and Dorian gray, which is a completely different character. But, and then you have shows like sex life and you know, all these types of things. It's like, well, the archetype of what women are, are like, sort of drooling over is very different than I think what most men have grown up witnessing you know, or being told that men, ac- that women actually want. Do you agree? Totally. Totally.
0: Yeah. The funny thing about 50 Shades of Grey, if he was living in his mother's basement, it would be like a horror story.
1: <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Yeah. I wouldn't, uh, that'd be a very different story. He wasn't a billionaire. That is not a love story. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh yeah. Anyway. where were we? What was the
0: original question? I like, arousal, and arousal,
1: yeah, yeah, attraction. Attraction. arousal and
0: attraction. Yeah, Yeah. So arousal um, are the things that make her want in, in another way of looking at it, arousal are the things that make her want to, to have sex, like then and there. You know, like I said, get the, the get her wet between the legs and attraction are the thing are the things that make her want to partner up with you and make, make her want to have you or to more probably to be in your life. Because there is that there is that dynamic of my, my friend Roland also used the phrase "alpha fox versus beta fox." That's the that's the phrase he uses for it. I think it's been a pretty apt description too. Like this, and we see this in, in women's like mating choices, especially when they're you know, especially when you look look at their partners through like college years and things like this. When when mm-hmm. women are you know, tend to be a little, especially American women, tend to be a little more promiscuous. They will be uh, they will go after the guy who's exciting, the guy that arouses her, instead of going after a guy who's necessarily attractive as a long term partner. And those, the things that make a guy attractive as a long term partner, you know, things like, like money, you know, the, the ability to provide for the status, you know, security, those are a little bit different from the things that might necessarily get her aroused and excited. And things that get her aroused and excited will t- tend to be more dominant characteristics. Like, when I mean, you look at, look at guys who are like professional fighters, like boxers or MMA. I know some guys who've who done this professionally. There are no short supply of women who are aroused by them. They are very arousing men because they're dominant and they're, they're physically imposing. And women's subconscious deep down knows, okay, this guy could probably kill every other guy in this room. So I want him, you know, and I want him now. Mm. So that is an arousing attractive, arousing characteristics of a guy versus the guy who's, who, you know, maybe he's taking her out, taking her out to dinner you know, has a yacht or has a nice car or whatever, that's, an attra- that's attractive because you know, it's attractive for like
1: long term security. It is interesting because it, it seems like Tinder data kind of backs that up too, right? You've got like, what was this? It was like, if you take 50 women and 50 men, 45 of the women are going to go after five of the men, right? It's, and it's and it's generally those types of guys that look like they have a good amount of status, but they also meet certain physical criteria. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's a very interesting conversation. A buddy of mine and I had this recently because I'm like 6'1", 6'2", 205 pounds, like not a small guy. And, you know, he's 5'8", you know, not not as like muscular. And he was having problems on dating apps. And I was like, oh, that sucks. And he was like, no, you don't, you don't get it. He's like, you don't understand what the experience is like. And I was like, oh, you're, yeah, you're probably right. Like, I don't understand what that experience is like. I'm sorry. Um, and. And so, but it, it is interesting to see because it almost sounds like what you're saying, and I'm curious to get your take on this, is there a biological imperative that you, that you feel like women have towards a certain type of men that creates that arousal? Or can you be a man who under any circumstances can create arousal?
0: I think you can be. You can work on it and you can be a man who creates arousal. And you can be, you can try to, I mean, ideally you want to try to be the guy who's all around. You want to, you want to try to be the guy who's all those things, right? Because it, okay, it's it's, it's I think of the guy who's like all arousal and no like you know like long term attraction. I mean that's basically like the guy who's you know the the drummer in like right. the rock band that plays the local uh, dive bar on the weekends. Like he's all arousal with like no like lives in his van has lives sleeps on a mattress has no you know no money in his bank account. There's no like long term future there. So ideally you want to you want to be everything because you want to you want to not only build a future for yourself and you know, potentially your family and stuff. But you also want to be the kind of guy who, is, who gets genuine arousal from women. You don't want to be taken advantage of you know, by like quote unquote gold diggers, right? You mm-hmm. want to be the guy who actually arouses her because that's going, to be, that's going to lead to a far more fulfilling sexual and romantic relationship in the long term, I think. I fundamentally believe that any guy you know, can achieve that. It's always going, sure, going to be a lot easier for others. If you're, you know, if you're six foot two, it's a little easier than if you're five foot eight. That's absolutely true. Uh, God has favorites. And uh, <laughs> life, isn't, life isn't fat. Like, that's the uh, you're dealt a certain hand in life, and you have to play with it. So I don't think it's, it helps any guy to sort of say, oh, it's not possible, you can't do it. I think it's always better for, for you to approach life from the perspective of, okay, if one man can do it, that's okay. Mm-hmm.
1: You know,
0: it might be harder for me, it might take
1: more work, fine. But it can still be done. I, I agree. I agree entirely because... I think it's about owning what you're working with. I have a buddy of mine who, you know, he's not the tallest guy. He's not the most good looking guy, but he is so smart and he's so charismatic and he's so funny and he owns those things to such a degree that he's very alluring for like women love him. They're obsessed with him and, but he's comfortable in his skin. You know, like, he really is comfortable with who he is. And I think that's the big thing that I hear you saying. Okay. Last couple of questions. I'm going to let you off the hook. Otherwise I'll, I'll just talk to you for hours and hours and hours and, and pick your brain endlessly. Obviously one of the big questions that I got from guys was how do I last longer and how do I have better erections? And so talk to me a little bit about the art and the science of lasting longer. Let's begin there. Cool. I mean, we
0: already were, we were, we were talked about the, the porn stuff. So that's always the first to cut that crap out, right? Lasting longer is a, a, a large component of lasting longer is basically Pavlovian conditioning or like just conditioning in general and how you have conditioned your body to react to sexual stimuli or physical stimuli in a lot of cases. So the way that men masturbate, the way that especially when it comes to pornography, a lot of guys will tr- are deliberately accidentally training themselves to finish quickly because they'll, they'll jump online and watch a video and then they're, they're beating their meat as fast and vigorously as they can and they're trying to finish as fast as they possibly can. And obviously, what is that doing? If you don't understand anything about Pavlovian conditioning or anchoring and conditioning in general, you're literally just training your body to bust as quickly as you possibly can. So why are you surprised that when you are with a beautiful woman who's and it's probably a novel experience for you if you're not having that much sex, why are you surprised then if you're coming very quickly? It would be like walking to and from the grocery store every day and then expecting to run a marathon. Yeah, right. you're just not going. To, not, you haven't conditioned and trained your body to respond that way. So obviously, if you have if you have a long term partner and you're still running into that kind of an issue, like it's not in that case, it's probably not a novelty thing because she's not genuinely super novel, right? Because you've been with her for several years, but you still might be conditioning yourself to have sex with her in a certain way that leads to you climaxing quickly. So mm-hmm. one of the things I always used to do whenever I was having sex on set for pornos is I'd always do the, my, my least favorite sex position first. Because what tends to happen is if a guy, and this is from my own personal experience and from talking with a professional male adult film stars like myself, is if you can last at least like five minutes, if you can kind of get over that hump of like excitement within the first five minutes, then typically you can last as long as you really want. But if you if you lose control, if you are slightly out of your control within those first few minutes, then you're kind of playing uh, you're playing catch up. You're kind of in recovery mode the whole time. So the first position, the first thing, first kind of physical stimulus you go through during sex will tend to dictate like how sensitive you feel throughout the rest of the sexual interaction. And another thing, another very very common thing that I noticed amongst other male porn stars is they'll go down. They'll start sex by, by, by eating pussy. And they'll start that way because it does two things. One, the actual like influx in and the, the smell and the indoctrination of like pheromones that you can get from you know, a woman's groin area makes you excited and, and makes you aroused and gives you, a, gives you a hard-on. And two, it allows you to have that hard-on without it being overly stimulated to start with for a few minutes so you can have control over it and you can mm. master it. Yeah. That's the, that's the lasting longer side of things. In terms of the erection side of things, there's two, so there's two differences between, there's a difference rather between what's known as erectile dysfunction and what's known as performance anxiety. And people tend to conflate these two together, unfortunately. Um, erectile dysfunction is a blood flow issue. It's like a, it's a physical condition. You've got arterial plaques, perhaps, not just arteries throughout your body, but also there's arteries in your penis. And if you have arterial plaque in there, like calcium deposits, then you will not be able, the the blood vessels can't relax as much, expand as much, and and be filled with as much blood. So that will hinder your ability to maintain a strong long-lasting erection. So that's kind of erectile dysfunction. And all of that comes down to diet, exercise, hormones, being as healthy as you possibly could be. Unfortunately, due to the standard Western diet, that tends to be compromised quite a bit. And then the performance anxiety side of things is the mental component one of the, you know, the big mistake that people think when, when it comes to this problem, if they can't get it up in the bedroom, the first thing they do is they reach for the, they reach for the little blue pill. They reach for Viagra or Cialis or something like that. And what you don't realize, what they, they fail to realize, is that a lot of the times when that actually works, it's a placebo effect because it doesn't, Viagra and Cialis don't give you an erection. They help you maintain one for a longer period of time. It's a, it's a blood flow thing that Viagra <laughs> and Cialis fix. They don't fix the mental component. You can still be. You can take as many Viagra's as you like, and you can still be too nervous to get an erection because it doesn't excite you. The, ex, the feeling of excitement is what starts the process of giving you a boner in the first place. And if uh, if you're if you're in your head too much, if you if you're self conscious, if you're nervous, if you're, uh, you're doubting yourself sexually, doubt, you're doubting like whether or your partner is, is like kind of interested in you or in or in into being sexual with you or. Now you're worried, maybe you're even worried about like pushing things a bit too far, like we talked about with the B2 stuff. So, a lot of you guys can get paranoid about that. Hmm. That can all that can, can start to hinder your ability to relax and be present and be in the moment because the erection is, like we talked about before, a relaxation response. You need to be relaxed. And the, the ideal state, the ideal, ideal mental state for a man in the bedroom is actually one of calm arousal. He's excited, but he's not. He's not a, a too excited where, to the point where if he doesn't have control, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna blow his load very quickly. And he's not too excited to the point where he's actually nervous about his performance either. It's a calm, confident arousal is the ideal male state of mind to go into sex with because then he can last as long as he wants. He can enjoy himself. He's calm enough to maintain a strong erection. And everyone's, you know, she's having a great time. He's having a great time. Everyone's happy, right? Mm. So how do you achieve that mental state? A large part of that is taking the pressure off of yourself. I think guys will come into the bedroom from a kind of performative frame of mind. Like they need to perform, they need to impress her, they need to deliver, to feel like a man, you know, to feel like they've uh, given her a good experience. But if you put too much of that pressure on yourself, then it does the complete opposite. It causes you to fail in the first place. Taking a lot of that it actually being a little bit selfish as a guy and actually enjoying looking at getting your own first, like is it trying to do things. Is This is obviously if you don't have a problem with that, with premature ejaculation. It's one of these two. You can't talk about them all in one uh, encompassing idea because if you get a bit too selfish, then obviously you're probably going to have the same problem we talked about before. You're going to bust too quickly, right? But if you're not selfish enough, then you're not paying attention to your own body and your own needs,
1: and you're not going to be... Uh, in that calm state of arousal. I love that, man. Cause I, I mean, for a while, I was a lot about the nervous system and one of the things that I've talked about in the past is how you have to be in a, in a parasympathetic dominant state in order to even get an erection as a man. Uh, I mean, yeah, your autonomic nervous system has the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and most of us just spend the day in a stressed out overtaxed state in our sympathetic nervous system. And then we, you know, have the opportunity, whenever that is, to have sex. And then, you know, guys are like, well, how come I can't, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with performance anxiety or this or that. And it's like, well, you're, you're entering into that situation already taxed, already stressed out. And what I see happening with a lot of guys is they can't get out of that stress state. And conversely, they've actually been using unintentionally pornography as a means to get out of that stress state right? Because you use porn. And I think I, I read in the, in the Pornhub data, it was like the average watch time was like nine minutes and 50 seconds or something like that. Um, I was going to make a comment on my, my porn watching usage back in my 20s, which was definitely not that. It was, like, <laughs> it was like a couple hours, which was also not healthy. But I think, you know, a lot of guys are using porn as a means to like downregulate, to just feel more chill, feel more relaxed. And so when they're entering into into sex, they're having problems getting out of that stress state and into that relaxed state because they've been using getting off as a tool to just downregulate, you know, as a tool to de-stress. So I I appreciate what you're saying. Do you have any, maybe this is what we'll wrap up with. We didn't really get to the dating part. So you're not going to have to have part two at some point in the future, whenever that is. But do you have any recommendations or tools that you recommend for men to deal with that performance anxiety to de-stress before sex because I think for a lot of guys that's a it's a big problem, big challenge.
0: Yeah, so this is this is actually something I kind of came across by accident during the summer of 2020. I was just you know, I was out kind of exploring, I was actually in Portugal at the time. I was traveling through the a co- coastal city in Portugal with my best friend and we just had we had this one day which was basically like the perfect day. And it was kind of like the, the exact kind of day that you would imagine, like a, a yeah, like a Roman legionnaire or someone back in that time had, like what their day would have consisted of. And it was, and it came down like I think we we labeled it the this, this, uh, I think it was a six essence. And let's see if I can remember. Like it was like sun, sparring or squatting, right? Uh, sports massage, steak, sex. I don't know, just five. But basically, the idea, like if you look at the the first like five, so I'm probably missing out one or two things so. here. All the things that allow your hormones to kind of have a have a healthy reset and allow your body primarily to like relax and chill and dis- deregulate, like you said, right? Getting plenty of su- getting getting healthy doses of like vitamin vitamin D, getting out in the sun, and while you're out in the sun doing some kind of physical exercise, ideally like heavy resistance training or maybe sparring, something because there's benefits for both of those. Like heavy resistance training, great for testosterone production. And sparring or competitive sport is also great for testosterone production because of the competitiveness of it. And then fueling your body with some with some good food like steak, I'm a big proponent of that. But the, other, the one of the big components of it was we uh, we ended up that day we you know we're, we're sparring in the sun, we eating steak, blah blah. blah. And we, then we went and got like a, a massage at like the, one of these Thai massage parlors, not the dodgy kind, but uh, <laughs> the kind the kind where like it's a, it's an old lady and she just stands on your back and like beats the crap out of you. Uh, yeah. And the next day, we felt ten years younger, just because of this sort of sequence of events. And I just, I, we kind of came across that. I was like, I wonder if this works. There. Like, it was just us. So I started recommending it to a few people, and I had one kid. He was he was in his early twenties, and he was working in Silicon Valley, like a really intense Silicon Valley job. And he he emailed me with a very with a very similar symptoms to what you just described. Like he's he's intense, he's stressed out, and then he goes to have sex, and nothing's happening, and he like can't, but he can, but he. But he'll masturbate to go to sleep at night to de stress, mm. right? And like all these same patterns. And I'm like, okay, try this dude. Like, oh, sauna. That was the other one. Mm. Sauna was the other S. I knew there was like six S's. So, and the sauna is great too because that two to three sessions, 20 minute sessions of sauna per week, amazing for your cardiovascular health and has a dramatic effect on reducing like cardio, cardiovascular events like heart attacks and strokes and things, massively reduces your risk of all these things.
1: If I, could, if I could interject, there's also a good amount of research that shows that regular sauna is one of the best ways to combat <clears throat> dementia.
0: So I many uh, amazing things for it. Uh, yeah. It's also great at getting rid of like, est- estrogenic compounds from your, that are stored in your fat cells. <laughs> Fantastic at getting rid of that. Uh, whole host of benefits. Can't recommend, can't, can't recommend sauna or not. So can, yeah. So basically, I, t- I prescribe this guy, look, okay, get plenty of sunlight, squat, Eat some, eat some good steak. Hit the sauna, and then go and get yourself, or, or vice versa, and get yourself like a Thai sports, a sports massage. One where they beat the crap out of you. Not know, it a relaxing massage, oddly enough, but this massage is actually kind of pain, like so intense it's kind of painful. But it's getting into the deep tissue and causing that deep tissue and the, 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 the sort of knots that are in there to release. Mm. And that re- that release will not like not only just release the muscle, but it'll help release every other aspect of your body, and it's, and mentally too. So. And he did that for like, he dedicated like one to two days a week for a couple of weeks doing that, and bang, he fixed his problem. He was, he was back in it. It was just purely the, the amount, because stress will just sit there in your body and it will load on top of itself again and again and again. And you have to take the time to actually just chip away at it and get rid of it. Especially, it is why I think particularly sauna and sports massage are really, really good for releasing that and getting that that built-up tension out of your body so that you can get go into sex, for example, in a far more relaxed
1: state. So good, man. Well, like I said, I could talk to you for hours. Thank you so much for being here with me today. This was uh, a blast. Just glad, glad I got to drop in with you and, and, uh, and just sort of pick your brain a bit and ask the, the viewers, the listeners questions. And where can people find out a little bit more about you uh, and, and your work? Yeah, I mean, you can go to sterlingcooper.com. My name is spelled like it is uh, right
0: here, S-T-I-R-L-A-N-G. You can find all my social medias, like my Twitter, my YouTube, my Instagram, the various courses and products and things I do. If you want to see more of my content on YouTube, again, just type in Sterling Cooper, my channel will come up. Uh, My Instagram is kind of backwards. It's at Cooper Sterling. If you want to follow me on Instagram. And my Twitter these days is at Sterling Wisdom.
1: That's where you can find my Twitter account. So that's
0: those that's where I'm those three accounts that we're on the
1: most active. Awesome. Well we'll have the links for those in the show notes. Thank you for joining me and for everybody that's out there. Don't forget to man it forward. Share this conversation with somebody that you know will enjoy it. And as always, until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.